Well, this evening we're going to read from Romans chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, please do turn it open with me. Pete's going to help us think through this a little bit later. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 this evening. And we're thinking all about this subject of change. How can we change? What does change look like for us? And Pete's going to unpack it for us in a little bit. But this evening we're going to read from Romans 8 and verse 28 through to 39. So Romans 8 and verse 28. And this is God's word to us. And we know that we can trust it completely. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spur his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also be with him? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God the Father, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we praise God for his word to us here this evening. Well, if you have a Bible with you, please do open it to that passage that was read to us from Romans chapter 8. We're going to spend a little bit of time in Romans 8 this evening, but we're going to flick throughout a few other passages in the rest of the New Testament as well. You'll know, of course, that over the past month, the Rugby World Cup has been on in Japan. England will play South Africa in the final next weekend after their very impressive victory over New Zealand yesterday. That defeat, of course, marked an end of an era for the All Blacks and their coach in particular, the man on the screen, Steve Hansen. He's sort of, he's halfway off the screen on that TV, but he's on that screen. That's okay. Um, He is retired now and left the All Blacks, his coaching position there. Um, He leaves with an incredible record, a win ratio of just short of 90% in all of the competitive tests that he coached for New Zealand. Um, One of the mottos that he instilled into the all-black team and all-black rugby culture at that point was the little line, if you can't change the people, then change the people. If you can't change the people, then change the people. In other words, if you can't get the people who are there to do what you want, then get people who will do what you want. 
It worked very well for New Zealand. He was never afraid to make some big and ruthless calls. It's part of the reason as to why they were so successful. It works well in a professional sport environment, that little line. I'm not so sure that it works that well in a church setting. I don't know if pastors or ministers or elders can just say, well, I don't have the people to do with what I want. I'll just change the people. Of course, it works both ways, right? The congregation could do that as well. One of the questions we have to think about then in Christian ministry is how do people change? That's really what I want to spend most of our time thinking about this evening. Um, I guess as I've gotten a little bit older, I have become a little bit more cynical perhaps as to how much people can change and yet I've been rebuked again as I've been putting this together, reminded that actually when it comes to gospel ministry, we can't be cynical about how much people can change. The whole point of the gospel is that Jesus does and can and is and promises to change people and make them more like himself. So as we look at this this evening, we'll spend a little bit of time here in Romans 8, but we'll look at one or two other passages to help us think about how it is that God actually changes us into the people he wants us to be. I don't know about you, but I confess that I'm pretty slow to change. Um, As I look back on my life, a couple of different things have made that pretty clear to me in different ways. Marriage is one of them, has showed me how slow I am to change. Parenthood, even more so. Whether it's learning to put the toilet seat down, something I had to learn in marriage, still learning in marriage. Or whether it's learning to get up early and change nappies. Change doesn't come easy to us. That can be true of the little habits that we develop over a lifetime. It can also be true of certain attitudes and opinions and values that we hold. But most of all, it's true of our hearts, isn't it? We can be incredibly slow to change. We are a people who find change difficult. I'm sure that's something that you can identify with. You might be a relatively new Christian here this evening, struggling perhaps with some of the habits of your former way of life. You might be an older Christian, someone who feels as though you have plateaued somewhat in your walk with the Lord. Maybe you grew quickly at first, but in recent years, things have just tapered off somewhat. Your Christian life is much of a muchness. You are frustrated with it. Or maybe you're a Christian who has fallen into sin, perhaps secret sin in a big way, and you're wondering how on earth you will ever get back on track. We know, on the one hand, don't we, that change is difficult. And yet we know as well that the Bible makes it incredibly clear that God wants us to change. If you look at that passage that we read earlier, we see in it that God's great purpose for us in salvation is to make us more like his son. So look at verses 28 and 29 of Romans chapter 8. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So Paul here is saying that God has saved us, and in doing so, he wants us to become more like Jesus. So theologically, we call this sanctification, progressive sanctification, the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. Because God wants us to change. He wants us to be holy in particular. We sometimes say that God is more concerned about our holiness than he is about our happiness. But of course, it's not that God wants us to be holy and unhappy. Rather, he actually wants us to see that our holiness and our happiness, that deep sense of joy that comes with knowing the Lord Jesus, those things are actually bound up together. 
the more we grow to be like the Lord Jesus, the deeper our sense of joy in the Lord ought to be. So we know that God wants us to be holy. He wants us to be like Jesus. How does this happen? How does God change us to be more like his son? Three things that I want us to see this evening. First of all, a change is God's work. Then secondly, that change takes time. And then finally, change is a, a family project or a community project. So change is God's work then, first of all. We see this in these verses in Romans chapter 8. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. The language Paul uses is really clear. God is the one who changes us. Excuse me. He takes the initiative in this process. It's another important verse. You don't have to look it up, but... 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23, Paul writes these words, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. Paul is making it very clear that it is God who sanctifies us. Sometimes in the Christian life, we we miss this, I think. Perhaps most of us have no real problem believing that God justifies us that we have been saved into the faith solely on the basis of Christ's work on the cross for us. However, we can so easily go wrong after that and think that from that point onwards, it's then over to us. We think that keeping going in the faith is all about us and our performance. We maybe recognize that God has been responsible for our justification, but we then think that we are solely responsible for our sanctification, But what we have to see is that actually sanctification, the process of change, is just as much God's work in our lives as justification is. That we are saved by grace, yes, but that we are also changed by that same grace. Imagine being carried across Niagara Falls by a skilled tightrope walker. Some of you can imagine nothing worse. I'm not sure I can imagine much worse than that. But imagine you're being carried across Niagara Falls by a skilled tightrope walker. And halfway across, you have a choice. You can either let him carry you the rest of the way, or you can tell him that you think it would be better if you got down and climbed or walked the rest of the way yourself. What would you do? It's a no-brainer, really, if we were to be in that situation then we would want to continue in the way that we started. It's the same in the Christian life. If we're going to keep going and keep growing and change into the people that God wants us to be, then we must continue the same way that we started. So how did we become Christians? We became Christians by faith in Jesus. How do we stay Christians? We stay Christians by faith in Jesus. How do we grow as Christians? We grow as Christians by having faith in Jesus. So often when, when we want to change, our first instinct is to think we have to do something. And so, for example, we, we maybe pray a prayer for forgiveness. It's a good thing to do. Or we confess a sin that we're stuck in and we vow that we will never slip up in that particular way ever again. Maybe we even write into a journal, I am never gonna do this again. And we can imagine ourselves in a few weeks or a few months down the line, I've done it, I have finally conquered whatever it was that is plaguing us. We think that if we try hard enough and commit fervently enough, then we can change. But the reality is that that's simply not the case. 
which a Puritan theologian called John Flavel once said this. This is a, a really helpful quote, I think. He said, we are no more able, or sorry, we are more able to stop the sun in its course, our mech rivers run uphill, as by our own skill and power to rule and order our own hearts. He is saying that we simply cannot change by trying harder to modify our behavior. We have a better chance of stopping the sun in the sky or of making a river run uphill than by just trying ourselves to change. And so maybe you're here and you're hearing a sermon on change and you want the list of do's and don'ts as to how it is that you're to change. The truth is that although we might profit for a little while from an endless list of activities, that's not how our hearts change. And God wants to change our hearts and not just our behaviors. That's why in the Gospels, Jesus goes to such lengths in his teaching to address the heart not just people's behavior. So often in the gospels, people approach Jesus and they're asking him all sorts of questions and sometimes they're just looking a quick fix. And repeatedly, Jesus' response is to address the much deeper issue of the heart rather than the surface issues that people seem so keen to discuss. So for example, in Mark chapter 10, the story of the rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus with a spiritual question, but really he wants to be affirmed in his good living, moral lifestyle, And yet Jesus sees past all of that and he tells him that his ultimate problem is his love of money. He loves it more than he loves God. Jesus addresses his heart. He's not interested in mere external behavior modification. He wants real heart change. And so if you and I are going to change, then we must recognize that we need God to change us. And he must do so in a deep way. He must change our hearts and not just modify our behavior. Whenever I was at university, I came across a sermon by a a Scottish preacher called Thomas Chalmers. It's a sermon with a very elaborate title. People don't preach sermons with titles like this anymore, but the title of the sermon is The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. My title is much simpler than that, How People Change. But this sermon, you can get it online. It's easily accessed via PDF. It feels like you're reading a sermon written by Yoda a little bit because the language is a bit antiquated. But in that sermon, I remember reading it at university and after three or four times of muddling my way through it, realizing that this was probably something that I'd never really heard before or thought any way deeply about before. The basic point of Chalmers' sermon was that if we are to change then it will be because the affections of our hearts are stirred and changed more for the Lord Jesus. He's arguing that the only way that we can stop committing a particular sin is if our hearts are melted by the gospel and then our affections, our desires, our wants, our loves are changed. So for example, right? imagine that you are in work tomorrow and you are tempted to be short with someone because they have angered you in some way, how do you stop yourself in that moment? Well, there's perhaps a couple of things that you could do. You could maybe bite your tongue and say nothing and go away upstairs and grumble about that person and give off about them behind their back. But while you would have modified your behavior in front of that person, you wouldn't really have dealt with the anger or issue in your heart. So how do you apply the gospel to that situation so that you respond in the way that the Lord Jesus would want you to respond? Well, it might go something like this. You remind yourself 
that God has been gracious to you, that you have been an affront to him, you have angered him, and yet Jesus has absorbed the Father's anger on your behalf. And as you think about that, and as you press that truth deeper and deeper into your heart, then you have the capacity to respond differently than you might have at first. Now, of course, that takes time, and we're going to see that in our second point. It rarely happens instantly that we change like that. But over the course of a long period of time, as we remind ourselves of the gospel, God changes our affections, changes our hearts, so that we find ourselves wanting to please Jesus rather than respond sinfully in any given situation. God changes us by the gospel. That's why in our preaching here, we often, always, come back to the cross. We're seeking to remind ourselves, even as believers, of all that Jesus has done for us and all that he has won for us so that we can live differently for him in the places that he has us. So that's the first thing we see. It's God who changes us, and he does it by melting our hearts with the gospel. Second thing then, change takes time. Sanctification is a marathon and not a sprint. Paul writes to the Philippians really famously. Some of you, I'm sure, will know this verse and have treasured it. Philippians chapter one and verse six, he says, the God who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so when Paul writes these words, he knows that although there are many issues on which the Philippians are to be commended, there are also real battles with sin, both in the lives of individuals and in the life of the wider church community. Sin remained a reality for those early Christians And of course, for us as well, the old sinful nature is a reality in our lives today. Martin Luther has a quote about indwelling sin in the life of the Christian in which he likens it to a man's beard. So that makes this quote both very hipster and very reformed, okay? Here's what he says about indwelling sin. It's on the screen. Indwelling sin in a man is like his beard, which though shaved off today so that a man is very smooth around his mouth, yet grows again by tomorrow morning. As long as a man lives, such growth of the hair and the beard does not stop. But when the shovel beats the ground on his grave, it stops. Just so, sin remains in us and bestirs us as long as we live, but we must resist it and always cut off its hair. And so because we all face this lifelong struggle with sin, We must recognize that sanctification, the process of becoming more like Jesus, will be a lifelong process. You will not change in a moment. And so we need to be patient. There are occasions when God can change a person's life overnight. Sometimes, for example, people break free from addictions in that way. But we must accept that most people, most of the time, don't change like that. For most of us, change will neither be quick nor easy. It might be the case that the analysis of what actually needs to change in our hearts can be quick and easy, but the actual process of changing is often not so straightforward. In fact, often the process of changing is deeply painful and slow for us. Horatius Bonner, a Scottish minister and hymn writer, once said that the Christian life is made up of the daily littles. For most of us, the battle in the Christian life 
will be the hundreds or thousands of daily littles that we face. The choice between self and service. We'll be most likely to fall when we face a traffic jam or when the printer runs out of ink or when we go home tonight and there's no milk in the fridge for tomorrow morning or when you have to change a nappy in the middle of the night. This is where we have to recognize that while change is very much God's work in us, we've said that already, how we respond to God's promptings in our lives really, really matters. We must respond in repentance and faith. We've been thinking a little bit about repentance and relate this term. We've been looking at the book of Acts. We've been seeing how the apostles have been calling people to repent. And one of the little definitions that we find helpful is one from another Puritan writer, a man called Thomas Brooks. He talks about repentance being the vomit of the soul. If we are to change and become more like the people that God wants us to be, then we need to be good at vomiting. We need to be good at repenting. You know what it's like when you're sick and you vomit. You don't want to vomit. It's horrible when it happens, but you feel better afterwards. You are getting better afterwards. Repentance is getting all of that stuff in our lives up and out and laying it bare before God so that he can change us. Repentance is the vomit of the soul. But we must also respond in faith. And we're not talking about a passive faith that waits on God to release us from a particular struggle. The biblical option is the fight of faith, the daily struggle to turn from sin and turn towards Christ in lots of different ways. As Christians, we need to remember that we are in a war. We've been thinking about that in Sunday nights here, haven't we, as we looked at the book of Revelation? Imagine, imagine a soldier in a war who decides that he's going to take a day off. He's there with his colleagues in the middle of a war zone and he lifts out his deck chair and he puts on his sunglasses and he whips out his phone and he starts scrolling through Instagram and liking photos. How long is he going to last in the battle? Not very long, I would wager. And so we need to remember that as Christians, we are living in a war. Spiritually speaking, we are not living in peacetime. We've been seeing that in Revelation. The times we live in are incredibly challenging. We see that in other places in the New Testament. Turn with me to the book of 1 Peter and chapter 5 for a few moments. 1 Peter chapter 5. I'm going to look at verses 8 and 9. Thinking about the spiritual battle that we find ourselves in. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. There is a war going on, and we must be in a constant state of alert because our enemy is in a constant state of attack. And of course, we must remember that in this battle, there will be good days and bad days, and there will be ups and downs. And there may well be days where you feel like giving up in the battle as a Christian. But much of the emphasis of the New Testament is to encourage Christians not to give up. Remember what we read from Philippians, the promise that God who began a good work in us will carry it through to completion. You know that God is much more committed to changing you and making you more like the Lord Jesus than even you are? 
Here's an illustration that I find encouraging when thinking about this. There's a picture on the screen, I hope. It's a picture of the Mississippi River, and as it flows south towards the sea, it twists and turns to such an extent that oftentimes it is actually flowing north away from the sea, and yet the water within it ultimately is still flowing towards the sea. That's the way it is sometimes with our Christian lives, with this process of sanctification. Sometimes, if you were to look at our lives, it would look as though we are are moving away from God and holiness, and yet ultimately true Christians are flowing towards Christ and the new creation. Change might be slow, it might be progressive, it might be full of all sorts of twists and turns, it might be a battle, and yet we should be confident that it will happen because of the promise that God who began this good work in us will carry it through to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Change will take time, but we can be confident that God will be at work to change us. Last thing then, change is a family project or change is a community project. I wonder as you you look around you this evening and you see everybody else sitting in church How is it that you view other people in this church family? Maybe you look around and you see some people as your friends. Maybe you see some people more as acquaintances. Maybe you see some people as the new people. Maybe you see some as older stalwarts. I wonder, do you look around and see everyone here as family? I wonder, do you think of the people sitting beside you and in front of you and behind you and above you and below you as brothers and sisters in Christ. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter four. I said we'd be flicking about a little bit. Ephesians chapter four, and we're going to read from verses 11 to 14. Ephesians four, verse 11. It was he who gives some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So what's Paul saying here? The reason that it's so important for us actually to see and embrace one another as family is because the church family is the context in which change takes place. When Paul is writing this, he doesn't say that he wants individuals to be built up and become mature. He wants the body to be built up and become mature and attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Paul is writing to a family of believers and he wants the whole family to change, and he recognizes that if anybody in the family is going to change, then they will need each other. We need to remember, don't we, that much of the New Testament is not written to individuals. Sometimes we read it as if it's written to individuals, but it's more often than not written to communities of faith. And so change in the New Testament is almost never a solo project. It's almost always a family project. And so the context that God has placed you in in order that you might change into the person that he wants you to be, is right here. He has saved you into his church in order that he might shape you to be more like his son 
through his church. And so really practically, that means that we need each other. We need each other here. I need you to model Christ-likeness to me so that I can change and become more like the Lord Jesus. And you need me to do that as well. We all need one another to be healthy, growing Christians in order for any of us to change. And of course, that means that we have to allow others into our lives to help us change. Really practically, what does that mean for us here in Hill Street? There are a couple of things, at least, I'm sure there's more, but there's a couple of things that I want to talk about this evening. Firstly, we have to recognize that we are all here because God wants us to be here. You look at our church family, the people beside you and above you and below you and around you, it's not a random collection of people. It might be a bit weird, granted, but it's not a random collection of people. God has chosen each person here and placed them here carefully for the benefit of the whole family. Now let me say, you might have chosen other people, but God has chosen these people in your life to help you change. You know, when Paul writes these letters, whether it's to the church in Philippi or the church in Ephesus, he never writes to the perfect church because there is no such thing as the perfect church. And so you might find yourself saying, well, I wish our church was a bit more, or I wish our church had someone who would do X, Y, and Z. Well, our church family is what it is, and it is who it is by the grace of God. And God is using the different people, the contrasting personalities, the annoying people, the sinful people, the people who you don't like, the people who aren't like you. He is using them all to change you and to make you more like Jesus. Let me say, especially to the young people, that is what it means to have a healthy biblical ecclesiology, that you realize that the church is not all about you and your preferences, but God has placed the different people in here so that you might change more into the person that he wants you to be. An illustration that might help us with this, it's as though God has placed us all into a bag. It's like we're all rocks and he has thrown us into this big bag and he is shaking us around. And as he does that, we might collide with one another occasionally and sometimes sparks will fly. But gradually and slowly over time, we will become more smooth, more beautiful, more like God intends us to be. So please, let's not complain about your church family. Nor should you just be content with sitting back on the fringes and not getting too close. Because as you do that, you are choosing to distance yourself from one of the primary ways that God is going to change you. If God has saved you, then you are in the bag. It's not as though you're some rock sitting off on your own somewhere. He has saved you into the church. And it's as you come into contact with other people, he will change you and shape you more into the person that he wants you to be. It's the first implication for us. Second implication then for us in Hill Street is that we need to be better, I think, at speaking the gospel into one another's lives. If we're really to be a family that is encouraging and shaping one another to be more like Jesus, then it cannot be the case that it's only the minister or only the elders who are speaking the truth of the gospel into your life. We need each other to be gospeling each other all the time. Look at those verses in Ephesians 4 with me again. Verse 11, it is he who gives some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors, some to be teachers to prepare God's people for works of service. 
so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. So what's the job of pastors and teachers? Verse 12, to prepare God's people for works of service. And so an implication of the text is that it is all of God's people who ought to be serving one another. So what does that mean? What does it mean to serve one another? How are we to do that as a church family? Well, we serve one another by praying for one another, yes. We serve one another by helping each other practically, cooking meals, offering to babysit. Anybody can babysit anytime they want for us. But we serve one another by graciously speaking the gospel into one another's lives as lovingly and as sensitively as we can. This is how we grow. This is how we mature into the people that God wants us to be. It's how we become more like Jesus. So let me ask you this evening, who are the people in your life who you are loving enough at the moment to tell them the truth? And then, of course, who are the people that love you enough to tell you the truth? Think again of our example of being in work tomorrow and being faced with that colleague who has annoyed you and you're tempted to be angry with them. I wonder, do you have someone in your life who knows that you're a Christian, who knows that that's a struggle in your life, who knows that you're finding that difficult, who will love you enough to confront you when you get it wrong, but also love you enough to remind you that when you fail, the gospel is still true for you. Jesus is still kind and gracious and patient, still loving towards you to share the good news with you when you fail. Do you have people in your life who will share the gospel with you in that way? Because it's the job of the minister and the elders to prepare the body to gospel one another, to serve one another in that way. It shouldn't just be from the front that you hear the truth about Jesus spoken into your life. Part of what it means to change as a church family is that we have a culture where we're doing that for each other more and more. Our time's gone this evening. There's lots more that we could say about change. We haven't talked at all about the role of prayer and how we change, the importance of habit, the importance of the sacraments, the importance of suffering and how we change. Perhaps we can revisit some of those in the weeks and months to come. Let me finish by saying this evening that perhaps you're here and you are somewhat frustrated in your Christian life. You know that you need to change. You find yourself wanting to change and yet you feel a little bit like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You have genuine desires to live a godly life, and yet you find yourself wrestling with these ugly desires, these old habits that keep raising their head in your life. You just can't seem to shake them off. Please let me finish by encouraging you this evening. Know that change is possible, that if you belong to Jesus, please trust that he knows what he is doing in your life, that he is deeply, deeply committed to making you more like his son, that he is not finished with you, that he has provided you with everything that you need, both for life and for godliness. So press on. Remember that he is at work in your life. That change will take time. You will have good days and bad days. But remember that he has placed you here and surrounded you with these people so that he can mature you and make you more into the person that he wants you to be. Let's take a moment to pray together. Father, you you do 
know our hearts. You know the things that each and every one of us in here struggle with, the parts of our lives that we really want to change. And perhaps those are things in our lives that no one else really knows about, and yet nothing about us is hidden from you. Lord, please help us this evening to to know that change is possible for us. Help us to remember that you are deeply committed to making us more like the Lord Jesus. Particularly, Lord, for those of us who are here this evening and perhaps we have plateaued as Christians and we've almost given up on the thought that we can, we can improve any or we can become any better than what we are at the moment. Please help us to repent of that notion and to see again just how good you are and how much you have for us and how much you want us to be more like your son. And Lord, please help us as a congregation to be more loving and more brave and more courageous with one another, to speak the truth of the gospel into one another's lives, to to do these works of service for one another so that we can become mature and more like the Lord Jesus. We pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.